a right that cannot be abridged in this fashion, uh, the way the governor has tried to do it. Now, there is unquestionably, under the, sec the Second Amendment and the state constitution of, of New Mexico, the right for citizens to possess firearms. Law-abiding citizens can possess firearms in public. Um, the governor's attempt to make this a public health emergency is not an exception that appears in the Second Amendment or in uh, the state constitution. Uh, it doesn't appear in Bruin, it doesn't appear in McDonald's, it doesn't appear in Heller. That's because in Bruin, Heller, and McDonald, there wasn't a public emergency. There wasn't anything that was declared by a governor. That's what makes it different, I think, in this case. So does it, is it a difference that makes a difference? It, it doesn't make a difference because, Your Honor, the Second Amendment has no provision for that. Uh, if there is a, if it truly meets that Public Health Act, which we're not looking at today, if it truly meets that definition of a public health emergency, which, which it may, we've got a gun problem in New Mexico. However, the Second Amendment has no exception. It has no um, uh, part of it that says as long as a state governor can issue a, a emergency, you're allowed to take our citizens' firearms. It doesn't say that. There's no case that has ever said that. There's no historical uh, evidence of that. There's no support for it. In any How about other cases that have involved public health emergencies where courts have had to decide whether things like, I'm, I'm thinking about obviously during the pandemic mm -hmm. when there were restrictions on the rights to assemble and there were courts across the country that had to kind of deal with that. Those were First Amendment rights that were at issue. How does that play into my analysis here? There were, Your Honor, and there were closures of businesses. There were uh, certain things that the, they did in the, in the health emergency, which um, uh, I is think... Restricting that, people from assembling. Uh, from assembly. And the, but there were, I, I believe, stipulations as to that. There were uh, various things the courts had to look at in terms of those specific facts and whether uh, assembling uh, in a certain place may spread the uh, disease or may impact those persons. Now, those were different analyses than a strict... Uh, Second Amendment analysis where people are prohibited completely from uh, within the city of Albuquerque to possess law-abiding people with no criminal record, like Mr. Hain, cannot have a firearm in this city in a public place, just as a matter of the governor's stroke of a pen. The Constitution does not permit that based on uh, the governor's uh, determination that this is a public health emergency. Uh, the Attorney General, Mr. Torres, has written a letter on that. The uh, Sheriff, the, the um, DA, uh, they have also commented on that. They, they are not enforcing it because they do not believe it to be constitutional. They're not judges, though. They're not, and you're, you're the ultimate arbiter, and you decide this issue. And, and the only reason I, I supply those examples is, is to say that, Your Honor, this is not uh, constitutionally the way to go about this, the way the governor has done this. It doesn't comport with McDonald, Heller, or Bruin. Uh, secondly, Your Honor, there is nothing that has been put forth to show that there is historical evidence that this is acceptable to do. And so it fails the Bruin test. Um, because of that, I submit to this court that, that we have made a showing, uh, Your Honor, that there's a likelihood of success on the merits. Uh, and we've gone through those other elements that once, if we are able to show that, then the second, third, and fourth elements uh, are presumed in the favor of the plaintiff. Um, you're, talking, you're talking about the factors for the TRO? Yes, sir. Irreparable injury, 
balance yes, of harms, things like that? Yes, sir. And the, the irreparable injury, Your Honor, flows from the fact that if this court finds there's a likelihood of success on a constitutional right uh, being abridged, that there is irreparable injury under the case law. And we submit that as the case. <clears throat> there is no uh, competing interest which would overcome the constitutional abridgment that we put forth. Let me, let me ask you this, Mr. Bowles. What is it exactly that you're asking the court to enjoin? I know you're asking uh, the court to enjoin the uh, enforcement of certain parts of the public health order, or are you asking for the entire public health order? It seems to be looking through the executive order that was signed by the governor and the public health order that was signed by the Secretary of Health. Um, there, are, there are sections of this that really don't apply to Second Amendment issues. That's correct, Your Honor. And we have identified, in particular, the carry provision. <clears throat> we have cited that in our briefing. Essentially, the carry provision is the provision with the uh, requirements that citizens are not able to carry in public. And we have cited that in our brief. We believe that is the provision that offends the Second Amendment and the state constitution. And we are asking the court to enforce. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? It, it, if you look at the public health order, there's uh, eight sections to it initially. Um, it looks to me like section one would be one that you're challenging, which is no person other than a law enforcement officer or licensed security officer shall possess a firearm, so forth. Yes. That's, that's one section. Yes, Your Honor. And the next one that I see that would be applicable would be section four of the public health order, which states that no person other than a law enforcement officer or licensed security officer shall possess a firearm on state property, public schools, and public parks. That's correct, Your Honor. Outside of those two sections of the public health order, are you challenging anything else? Uh, no, Your Honor. If it does not impact the Second Amendment, we are not challenging those. All right. And, and this is if any of the other plaintiffs have a different view on that or have a different challenge to any other section, I'll hear from you when it's your turn. But that's, that's how I read this as well. Yes, sir. And, Your Honor, finally I will say uh, as to uh, the issue of standing, uh, Foster Haynes does have standing. He has laid that out in the declaration he has filed. Uh, he has indicated a reasonable apprehension of fear of the enforcement. Um, I did raise the examples earlier about law enforcement uh, as also as an impact standing. However, we also cited this court a uh, article in which the <clears throat> governor has tasked the state police to issue citations uh, for violation. Now, uh, to my knowledge, that has not happened uh, to date. However, uh, within that article, there was the strong intent and there was the wording that these will be enforced. Citations are coming, and they are going to issue. So he does have the reasonable apprehension as to if he possesses in public, he is going to be cited and fined. And that, in our case law, establishes standing without respectfully, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Balls. Thank you. Let's hear from the next plaintiff, which would be, now I forget which order I'd stated it, I think this is Donk versus Grisham. Yes, Anthony Napolitano for Plaintiffs Donk and Gunners of America. Let me proceed, Mr. Napolitano. May it please the court, the temporary restraining order is necessary and appropriate here to address the success on the merits, the Bruin case makes clear that there must be a historical analog for any regulation of 
the exercise of the Second Amendment right. And Your Honor asked about the difference here between Heller, McDonald, Bruin, and this case um, because there's an emergency that has been declared. For a deprivation of gun rights to be permissible under Bruin, there must be a historical analog from the relevant time period, and there are none. In fact, Bruin expressly warns against making entire municipalities, in that case the island of Manhattan, a, um, a gun-free zone or a, I believe they called sensitive place, uh, and that's Bruin at 2118. The issue here is expanding this law to the general public area of Bernalillo County is well beyond the scope of any historical analog for the regulation of gun rights. Um, in fact, to address Your Honor's You're other not question, asking me to make a determination on the historical analogs at this hearing, are you? Because that seems to me like it's going to be quite, quite a bit to delve into. Or, or are you saying that Bruin has already conducted, conducted this analysis because the issues were, were such the same that I can use that for determining the substantial likelihood of success in the merits? What I'm saying is twofold, Your Honor. First, that I do believe Bruin has conducted historical analysis on this, and it, by expressly stating that they could not expand the sensitive place doctrine, which is a similar idea here, there's a threat of gun violence, and therefore we will uh, prohibit guns from being carried in a certain uh, place, expanding that to an entire municipality um, is not within the, the uh the historical analysis for the Second Amendment. So Bruin has done the work uh, for this court, and therefore it is required that uh, this be um, restrained. And the second part of that is if um, the defendants would like to enter into the record some alleged historical analog for it, then perhaps Your Honor would have to, uh, you know, do your own analysis on that. But it would have to be from the founding period uh, per Bruin and potentially from around the time of the uh, 14th Amendment's ratification. So it's a very limited time period in which they would have to present that analog. Why, why do you say potentially the ratification period? It seems to me like the 14th Amendment is what applies to states like New Mexico. So why wouldn't we be looking at 1868 as well as during the time the Constitution was signed? Because the the language of the Second Amendment was ratified at the time of the founding itself and not during uh, the 14th Amendment's um, adoption. And so the Bruin Court gives the, um, gives the founding era really the, to be, gives it the most weight and establishes it as the primary period to look at and allows for some other analysis outside of that on a limited extent, but it has to also be um, represented at the founding. So if the, the two matched up, it would work. If they did not match, it would not work. Right. So here, the um, Your Honor asked previous counsel about the public health assembly restrictions uh, during COVID, and the constitutional issue of, of that aside, even if we were to agree with those, I believe it's distinguishable here because assembly itself was what caused the spread or enhanced the spread of COVID, where here gun carry by lawful um, citizens is not what's causing the problem in New Mexico. 
In fact, the governor's executive order cites shootings in Farmington and Red River, neither of which are Bernalillo County or Albuquerque. So the application of the order does not even match up with where she has um, identified a threat. Well, she, she also referenced the shooting of the 11-year-old and the 5-year-old. Um, and those, those took place in Bernalillo County, did they not? They are, Your Honor, but that, those are, again, limited instances. And the bigger issue is the, the fact that carry by licensed gun owners, by people who are law-abiding and without a license permitted to carry a firearm, does not cause um, additional right that cannot be abridged in this fashion uh, cause um, additional um, this is uh, from Texas and Michigan um, statistics show that concealed carry holders are roughly 80% less likely to be convicted of any crime than the general population so this law is targeting the wrong people. It is not affecting the um, the actual problem itself. So that's neither here nor there, however, because as I, I mentioned, Bruin has conducted the analysis. And as stated in Heller, the very enumeration of the right takes it out of the hands of even the third branch of government to decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether this right is really worth insisting on. So we have this commanding precedent as far as the likelihood of success on the merits. Bruin has done the analysis and the Second Amendment is being violated. As far as irreparable harm, uh, plaint uh, Plaintiff Donk is a, carry, um, a licensed uh, uh, concealed carry holder and he, likes, he needs to carry his gun, he feels the need to carry his gun anytime he leaves his house. He's an older gentleman um, who is a former um, Army Special Forces, and he sees that his ability to defend himself against younger people, et cetera, where he to be attacked, would still not be um, as good as it would be were he able to carry. So every time he is unable to carry a firearm outside of his house, which is his normal practice, even in his front yard, per the affidavit we submitted, he is being, uh, he's having his right deprived. And any deprivation of rights, even for a minimal period of time, constitutes irreparable harm. That's from uh, Peterson v. Kunkel uh, in this district, and also citing Elrod v. Burns. So the fact that Mr. Donk, whose mailbox is across the street, and he has a community mailbox, to cross the street, to get his mail, his Second Amendment rights are being violated. That is um, irreparable harm uh, that has been established. And then for the public interest and balance of equities, Chamber of Commerce v. Edmondson uh, notes that the public interest favors in joining laws that are likely to be held unconstitutional. So in this case, all of the temporary restraining order factors have been met and injunctive relief is required. All right, thank you very much.
Oh, let me have one question for you before you get off the podium. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, you agree with um, the previous plaintiff's counsel that the sections of the public health order that are being challenged are Section 1 and Section 4? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Anything else on the public health order that's being challenged by your client? No, Your Honor. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. This is uh, We the Patriots USA versus Grisham. Yes, Your Honor. Cameron Atkinson again for We the Patriots USA and uh, Mr. Smith. Um, to take it right off the bat, Your Honor, um, as to the question you just asked my uh, colleague, um, we are asking for um, Section 1 of the Public Health Order to be enjoined. We're asking for Section 4 of the public health order to be enjoined only as it pertains to public parks and state property that encompasses um, state parks. Going beyond that, in our view, would require a more detailed analysis that would be reserved, better reserved for the preliminary injunction stage. Um, we are also asking... Just, just to make clear with Section 4, it doesn't sound like you're challenging the entirety of Section 4. No, Your Honor. So we would not be challenging um, schools, which the Supreme Court in Bruin already recognized as a sensitive place. We would not be challenging state property in it, as it pertains to, say, the state legislative office building. That's a place where core government functions take place. Um, it's firmly within the sensitive places doctrine as explained in Bruen, in our view. Um, we, the public parks restriction that you're challenging. The public parks restriction, yes, Your Honor. Um, we would also ask, Your Honor, to enjoin Section 4 of the executive order, which is the portion that directs all local um, and state law enforcement to in, enforce the public health order. Um, so I just wanted to make that clear. Um, I, I'm not going to tread the well-trodden ground that uh, my colleagues have covered um, so far, but I do think um, that this case, to your, your Honor's question, represents a seminal moment in American uh, jurisprudence of what do we do with public health emergencies and the state police power as they uh, impact individual rights. And I think the Supreme Court in Cuomo, the Cuomo case, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese versus Cuomo case, answered that question for us. Even in the direst of public health uh, crises, the Constitution doesn't, can't be put on a shelf and forgotten. That controls this analysis in our view. Um, the, the Second Amendment is part of the Constitution. You, we just can't put it on the shelf and ignore it. Um, with respect to Bruen itself, um, I think Your Honor has two ways to go about issuing your decision here. Um, the first way, which would be the narrower one, would be to take Bruen's language that the Second Amendment's text 
presumptively guarantees a right to public carry, and then take its, uh, its, the language of the test it adopted in the sense that it's the government's burden to bear establishing the well-established and representative historical analog. Our belief is that you could issue narrowly a temporary injunction based on the presumptive textual guarantee and reserve the broader issue of whether there's a historical analog for the preliminary injunction phase. Um, but that said, we would also urge Your Honor to read, to read Beren carefully, as I sure, I'm sure you have, and the analogs that the Supreme Court discussed there were the common law affray statues of writing about with weapons to terrorize people, um, statutory prohibitions on carrying uh, in one manner or another concealed or open carry, and surety statues. And those are the analogs they analyzed and found were well established in history. There's nothing else. So I would concur in uh, my colleague's um, point that uh, Bruen has done much of the historical analysis for you already. Um, I would also concur that the historical record as we understand it today is completely bare of any broad restrictions on you just can't carry here in a time period where the Second Amendment was incorporated against the states and actually applied. Um, with respect to the trigger lock um, component and the transportation issue, I think Hellard has decided that issue um, for you, uh, at least in terms of the, the right as it existed during the home and uh, Dick Heller being required to trigger lock or otherwise uh, render his firearm inoperable. Um, I think that applies with equal force to the uh, to the right to public carry. Um, I'd like to turn the rest of my um, my argument to our sensitive places argument regarding um, public parks. Um, to us, the only applicable Second Amendment exception is the sensitive places doctrine. Um, we read the case law from Bruen, McDonald, and Heller as essentially leading toward the conclusion that sensitive places are places of core government functions. Um, we, we urge the court to take a very careful look at the Coons and Antignac decisions. Um, that discussed how uh, public parks and their forerunners, specifically Battery Park in New York, Boston Common in Boston, um, predated the founding, endured after the founding, and didn't have um, carry restrictions. Um, we also urged the court to consider that the first 
what we have located is the first carry ban on a, in public parks was the 1858 Central Parks ban, um, and that grew out of a adherence to Henry David Thoreau's Romanticism and not any legal um, philosophy at that point. Um, that movement took some time to pick up steam. Um, by 1871, per my research, um, there were only five major cities that banned the public carry of firearms in public parks, and no state uh, fell into that number. Um, and in terms of looking to what Bruen's definition of a well-established and representative historical analog is, that falls far short. Um, we think the, the subsequent history up until 1890 shows about 25 states and one, uh, 25 cities and one state, if my memory serves me correctly, um, had adopted those types of bands. Um, again, that's not a well-established or representative historical analog. And then finally, we would turn to um, New Mexico not having the uh, prohibition prior to Governor Grisham and Secretary Allen's um, order. We submit that public parks aren't. Did Bruin say anything about public parks? Bren didn't say anything about public parks. Where Bren addressed the sensitive places doctrine was um, New York's kind of post ad hoc attempt to characterize the entire uh, borough of Manhattan as a sensitive place. And it gave us guidance, but it, it expressly said we're not undertaking to define the full scope of this. So we have to return to the historical analysis under Bruen. Uh, that's why we think Coons and Antonyuk are, are very persuasive cases that Your Honor should look at because they've already done the work on a very detailed um, historical record and they came to the conclusion that these were not well established or representative historical equivalents of, um, of sensitive places. Um, if I may, I, I, Mr. Smith, um, he's, he's getting old. He's not fleet of foot where he can outrun an attacker. He's not strong enough to overpower an attacker. He needs his firearm to protect himself when he goes out. And Bruen says he doesn't need to establish a specialized need for it. We think the Second Amendment covers him. In conclusion, the last point I would bring to Your Honor's attention as to the balancing of the equities is unlike each, uh, most of the Second Amendment cases I've done and seen litigated, we're not dealing with a well-considered state legislative judgment where the policies and the interests were balanced and there was an attempt to draw a careful line. We're dealing with a knee-jerk reaction 
um, that virtually every major stakeholder involved in enforcing it, except for Governor Grisham and her subordinates, have declined to enforce it because they believe it violates the Constitution. We believe that's probative of where the public interests lie, and we conclude by reminding the court of what Bruen said, the Second Amendment is the ultimate interest balancing by the people of this country, and um, it, it, we should obey its unqualified command. So unless the court has additional uh, questions for me, I will rest on my uh, brief and ask your honor to issue the temporary restraining order today. Thank you very much. No, I have no further questions for you. Thank you. Let's, let's go to the next plaintiff. I did want to go back really quick, Mr. Bowles. Uh, whether or not you agree with the um, uh, with regard to the scope of the injunction that you're asking for uh, with section four of the public health order and you agree that it would only be do you agree that you would only be seeking to uh, enjoin the order uh, as to um, uh, well with regard to its restriction on public parks but do you agree that with public schools and state properties that is um, not at issue here? I, I agree, Your Honor. All right. And I'll ask the same of the other, the other, uh, Mr. Napolitano. Do you agree as well? We disagree, Your Honor. Okay. There are a few uh, reasons for that. The first is that. Most of the sensitive places that uh, my colleague said may be protected already are protected without this public health order. And so the order would not um, enhance any protection for them. In fact, it would create greater confusion and difficulty. Um, You're saying that the firearms are already restricted from schools, public schools and state properties? Uh, well, not all state properties. And this is the other problem, Your Honor. Um, for example, state highways, roads, uh, state rest stops along federal interstate highways, state forest areas, these are all state property, um, but would be restricted under the order where people do have the right and uh, currently those are not sensitive places um, otherwise. So restricting it on a blanket state property would still be too broad. I, I would uh, urge Your Honor to also um, include uh, line or paragraph four of the um, the order in the temporary restraining order and allow the currently otherwise standing sensitive places restrictions to that are already set in place in New Mexico law um, to be used to protect those actually sensitive places. All right, thank you. All right. Can I say some real quick? You may. I just may uh, edit what I just told the court um, because I, I misunderstood. I I agree with counsel what counsel just said I was thinking about places already protected so it was just sort of redundant but as to those other places that are not currently restricted I agree with what counsel just said oh redundancy is not an issue for me I mean if, if it's redundant that it's restricted it's been restricted before I don't have an issue with that right. but I, what I want to know specifically is what is the specific scope of what you're requesting in terms of the injunction and I agree with what council just mentioned. Uh, and I'm not really sure about the public schools issue. It seems like it's already restricted from public schools, so that's not an issue. It's just the state properties because my understanding, the argument being that it's too broad. 
yes, to say state properties and public parks because under Coons and other cases, those are not sensitive places. Yes, Your Honor. All right. All right, Mr. Lowry. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Afternoon. I want to thank you for making the time today to hear this matter. Um, I'll try to be brief, but I wanted to start, Your Honor, do you have any questions of me um, on the brief or outstanding questions you have about the issue? Uh, same questions I have for the others. I want to make sure that everybody's on the same page as to what you're requesting in terms of an injunction. Fair, Your Honor. Obviously, paragraph one of the public health order has to be enjoined. And I agree as to paragraph number four, I would just uh, ask for a return to the status quo ante, that any place not previously before the, the executive order and the public health order that wasn't defined as a sensitive place be returned to its former status as a potential carry venue, Your Honor. So that would be it in terms of the scope of the order. Uh, Your Honor, I did want to have a point of clarification that where uh, Mr. Bloss may be in a little different um, mindset philosophically from, from co-counsel. It's our position that Bruin actually commands the entire field. There's absolutely no need for any historical analysis whatsoever here. And that when you look at this pick, the, the framework of the legal issue as it's presented to you today, it's really about a macro issue. Can the governor decide that the entire city of Albuquerque and including the entire county of Bernalillo can she declare that to be a sensitive place where firearms are banned. And we submit that the Bruin decision decided that in terms of its analysis of, this, of the borough of Manhattan and that they're one and the same. You don't have to do anything other than, you know, pick up the Bruin language and apply it directly to this case. So I don't think there's a any kind of a historical analysis. No. Well, Bruin did say that it was still a two-part test. It did away with the intermediate scrutiny tests and all those that we had seen. It made it strict scrutiny, but I'm saying in terms of defining a sensitive place, I don't think you can go to the macro level that the governor has decided to do. And that's where I think Bruin commands the field, Your Honor. Um, and, and I just want to point, I know everybody decided to Bruin, but there's the, the one line of Bruin that, that I think particularly nails down this point is when um, Justice Thomas said, and I quote, the constitutional guarantee subject to a future judge's assessment of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. And that's where I was thinking he would, the court as a whole was speaking to, you can't ban um, Second Amendment rights in entire sovereign areas of government because there are too many non-sensitive places and captured within those political boundaries, if that makes sense, Your Honor. Um, and so really, I think the Bruin decision um, is binding on the governor, and, and it would be our argument that it's binding on the court today, Your Honor. So um, I think the bigger question maybe for us, and it's not really well briefed because it looked to me like all the parties have rested squarely on the Bruin decision, you started out at the beginning of this by asking Mr. Bowles, what about the public health emergency? And I did take time to look at that before today's hearing, Your Honor. And I think what's really important in that is if you look, if you take a step back and take a step back from the Second Amendment and say, are these orders even public health emergencies? And I think that won't speak for the court, but it sounded to me like that's the way you phrased it. And I think it emphatically is not a legitimate public health order, and I'll tell you why. 
if you look at the purposes of the Public Health Act, and I'm looking at 12-10A-2 subsection A, the legislature of New Mexico said that the purpose of the Public Health Emergency Response Act are to, and I quote, provide the state of New Mexico with the ability to manage public health emergencies in a manner that protects civil rights and the liberties of individuals, persons. And that's where the failure comes in here, and that's where the Second Amendment comes back to haunt the public health order, because any public health order has to account for the civil rights of ordinary citizens. And the liberties of individuals. And, and liberties, well, right. Couldn't the argument be made that the liberties of indi individual persons would also include things like the protection of their children from, from gun violence? Absolutely, Your Honor, but that's the nub of this is the gun violence in this situation is committed by criminals and not law-abiding Americans. And that's where um, these are two ships passing in the night because what the public health order and the governor's public health de declaration of an emergency are trying to do is say, we're going to eliminate all potential to carry firearms because criminals are afoot. Well, they're only criminals until they shoot and kill someone, right? So well, we don't know. Well, let me just, one second. For instance, the, the young uh, boy who was shot and killed at the Isotopes Park, the 11-year-old boy. Right. We don't know. As last I saw, no one knows who, who the shooter was. That shooter, what if that shooter was a, a concealed weapon, a permit carrier who had a concealed weapon, lawful otherwise, didn't become a criminal until he shot and killed the boy, right? Well, we don't know. Exactly. I mean, he could have been a felon in possession of a firearm. Well, I mean, he might have been a felon while he had the firearm, but he could have been in a stolen vehicle. That assumption is just those the assumptions that the court makes, or the court, that I'm making as a devil's advocate here. Uh, those assumptions are made by the parties as well, saying that it's you're assuming that these are law-abiding citizens, or that you're, that carry weapons, that only carry weapons, um, or carry weapons. We have both law-abiding citizens and, and citizens who don't abide by the law, carrying weapons. And that's the issue. And, and I think I understand the point here that law-abiding citizens should not be burdened um, and their constitutional rights should not be burdened simply because of the acts of one or two people or three people. But I think the governor's point is, and, and I have to say that I, I, I don't blame her for trying to do something, although I'm not saying it's constitutional, but uh, to take action in the face of these terrible deaths going on why wouldn't that be, uh, as, as far as a public health order is concerned, why wouldn't that be protecting the liberties of the individuals in New Mexico? I'm glad you asked the question, Your Honor. Give me a moment to answer it. Because if you look at the Public Health Emergency Act and you look at 12-10A-3 subsection G, it defines a public health emergency. And a public health emergency means the occurrence or imminent threat of exposure to an extremely dangerous condition or a highly infectious or toxic agent, including a threatening communicable disease that poses an imminent threat of substantial harm to the population of New Mexico or any portion thereof. And so when you look at this, I mean, you have to, if you're going to uphold, if the court's considering upholding the public health order on the falling under a permissible act of the governor, you would have to find that Everyone's under constant threat of an extremely dangerous condition. And I don't think, unfortunately, as it's, 
and I regret I I don't disagree with the government's the governor's attempt to rectify gun violence in this city, in this state, in this country. I mean, it's abhorrent, and nobody's here to support gun violence. I mean, I'm for the firm prosecution of anybody that commits a crime in this state, in this city, in New Mexico, and otherwise. But I think the issue is defining walking down the street whether our clients have guns or not. The criminal element isn't going to respect these orders or the laws. You know that as well as I do. We have a terrible crime problem in Albuquerque. So to strip people of the right to defend themselves against people that could care less, you have to assume that the criminal mind is going to go, oh, I was going to kill an 11-year-old boy at Isotopes Park. I could go to prison for life for that. But if I go to prison and get fined $5,000, I'm not going to do that. I mean, there's no additional deterrence value to the criminal mindset that these orders put in place that's going to decrease crime. And that's the problem. That's you're, you're basically saying that there's not a close enough nexus between the stated purpose of the health order. Exactly. And I was going to get to the. Yeah. Yes, right. Pardon me. There's not a close enough nexus between the public health order's purpose or stated purpose and the restriction on, on law-abiding citizens from, from carrying firearms. That's correct, Your Honor. I think there's a lack of a causal nexus between the, the order and the desired effect. And I would submit that there's probably zero causal nexus between the order and the desired effect to reduce violence. And that's the problem. And that's why it would fail a strict scrutiny analysis, Your Honor. And I apologize for the interruption. No, that's fine. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have a good staff that's protecting you. I appreciate well, I, that. Well, I think it's more of her trying to get the record straight. And when we talk over each other, she can't do that. But but she uh, protects me as well. <laughs> Anything further, Mr. Lowry, that, that, but, that hasn't already been covered? Um, no, Your Honor. And I just wanted to, well, another thing that's slightly different from us is we attack the vagueness of this. Um, the public health order itself. And I think that goes into this causal nexus argument that I'm trying to establish here. Is this appears to be, and I have no idea how, at this stage of the litigation, how these numbers came to be. You know, um, the definition of the, the sovereign areas that are banned, that fall under the ban, are cities or counties averaging 1,000 more violent crimes per 100,000 residents and 90 firearm-related emergency department visits per 100,000 residents. Um, you know, it just seems, unfortunately... Um, too broad for the ordinary person to know what that is. Not only too broad, but I mean, even then, back to the causation, it's too broad. Nobody could pick this up and understand where they were standing. If they, so I wouldn't, and only but for the media, articles saying this is Albuquerque and Bernalillo County, I couldn't sit at my computer and figure this out. I, I think it's vague, but the, the more critical problem in terms of causation is, wow, if we dropped, you know, if we increased the firearm-related emergency department visits, what if we made that 100 instead of 90? Would that change the, the calculus? Would that give causation? Or if we increased it or decreased it. I mean, there's just no, I don't think the government can establish 
any factual nexus to this standard that they set forth and the ability to reduce crime in the state. And that's the problem. That's the problem. It was a remedy that can't find the solution it's looking for. And that's, unfortunately, when you're talking about constitutional guarantees that this country has held sacred for over 200 years, that's the rub. Nobody is going to fault anybody, politician, legislature, this court even, for protecting the public safety of our citizens. But it has to be done in a reasonable manner that's going to be effective when you start butting up against constitutional rights. And that's where I think this public health order and the executive order fail, Your Honor. So I'm happy to stand for any other questions that the court may have. Thank you, Mr. Lowery. I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, Your Honor, can I have one other thing? Sure. It's on my pocket constitution. It just made me think of one argument that nobody's made that I would like to raise. And that's this. And it hasn't been briefed. But look, I mean, being the governor of New Mexico cannot be an easy job. And we said in our brief, it's laudable that she's trying to do something about gun violence. I mean, that's, you know, like I said earlier, nobody appreciates gun violence in this country or even in this city. But when we're talking about things like the public health order and whether it's, I think, the statutory language said an extreme threat to public safety, I mean, the governor has other means to protect the public safety. And so I look at the state constitution in New Mexico, and it says the governor's executive powers under Article 5, Section 4. And I'm going to change the pronoun because, unfortunately, our constitution uses the word he, but I'm going to use the word she. It says, she shall be the commander-in-chief of the military forces of the state, except when they are called into service of the United States. She shall have the power to call out the militia to preserve the public peace. And that's, to me, I mean, the governor has alternative means to protect public safety. If we're concerned about the safety of our citizens going to a baseball game at Isotopes Park, the governor has well within her powers, without affecting the rights of anybody sitting at this table, to call the National Guard out and say, if there's an imminent threat of safety, which you need for the public health order to apply, she could also say, I'm going to post the National Guard there to make sure it's safe for people to come out. So I think there are alternatives at her disposal that don't harm the rights of ordinary law-abiding citizens to protect themselves. The irony here is the definition of the sensitive area is dependent upon how many violent crimes there are and how many emergency-related visits we get. And unfortunately, the way I read that definition, it's like the more violent your community is and the better shot the criminals are, the less likely you can have a weapon to protect yourself. It's a disconcerted argument to make that the more violent area you live in, we're going to keep you from protecting yourself, and you have to rely exclusively on law enforcement to protect you. And I think that's where Bruin decided that question squarely for your honor. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Mr. Lowery. All right, let's have the last plaintiff. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning. Good morning.
present their argument, and then I'll go to the uh, defendants. Good afternoon, Judge. Good afternoon. Robert Adegon. Good afternoon, Mr. Adegon. May it please the court. You may proceed. Uh, thank you, Judge. Being last, uh, I can say I'm going to incorporate all the brilliance of my most august colleagues and, and say that uh, I thought of it first. <laughs> and I coached them up just a bit uh, before they all walked in. Uh, so, in all seriousness, Your Honor, um, the arguments of counsel uh, were on point and directly relevant to the issue at bar. Um, I would ask the court to, in regards to Mr. Fort et al., um, to grant the TRO um, predicated on Section 1 and 4, uh, with the exclusions delineated by Mr. Napolitano. And the exclusions being, I'm still unclear on those, I guess the public schools, I'm gonna, I would not. Yes, and, and Your Honor, um, those are core government centers, and I will suggest to the court that I do have, and representing as an officer of the court, I do have knowledge that APS and any public school within the confines of this order um, are protected not only by state law, but also federal law that prohibits firearms from being um, present in school other than those people who are, again, specifically outlined in the order, i.e. Uh, police officers, etc., because they do have armed um, police officers within APS. So those exceptions notwithstanding, again, incorporate the uh, exceptions outlined by Mr. Metolitano. Uh, we would ask for the same redress uh, by this court. Your Honor, um, there's not much more I can say. I do believe that when the court looks at McDonald, the court looks at Heller, the court looks at, uh, in particular, Gruden, um, I am absolutely convinced that there is um, no way that we could make this order comport with what the justices indicated are codified within the Constitution uh, and the Second Amendment rights. Um, and again, I could make additional arguments, but you've heard them all, Judge. But here's an argument that I think that the court needs to take into account that really hasn't been um, discussed much. And it's not necessarily this document, the United States Constitution, because uh, we have talked about that almost to nauseam, but rather um, section, Article 2, Section 6. And it does state very specifically, Your Honor, no law shall abridge the right of a citizen to keep and bear arms for security and defense. For security and defense. So we can talk about our founders, and I think that has been well discussed and well briefed by all consul, and I would assume as well as consul uh, for the defendant in this case. But there's no way to separate the governor in New Mexico from the state's constitution. Specifically, when she took the oath of office, she affirmatively stated to all of us in this room, all of us, that aside from defending this document, the state's constitution, she would also defend this document, the state's constitution. And we, we look at that oath, and, and she's a learned colleague, she's a member of the bar, you cannot separate Article 2, Section 6, which clearly says 
and I'm not here to discuss the Public Health Emergency Response Act. We have legislators in this room, very esteemed legislators, who probably should address it in the next legislative session. But that's not what's at bar. What's at bar here is whether this order offends either the federal constitution, now it's met by incorporating the arguments of counsel that it does, clearly delineated in the cases that were cited. But also, Your Honor, we cannot pretend as though this document, the state's constitution, doesn't exist. And if we acknowledge that it does exist and that we are governed by it in the state of New Mexico, the governor is also charged with upholding this because she's affirmed that. And the clear reading is easy, even for a guy like me, who's an otherwise a street lawyer, arguing in this most august setting, that no law shall abridge the right of a citizen to keep arms for security, for security and defense. My client carries an arm, carries a weapon, for exactly the purpose that our state founders contemplated in the state's constitution. And that provision outlined in Article 2, Section 6 has not been discussed. Was it something that you raised in your complaint? No, Judge, we did not. And again, I apologize for that. And again, I think this is why it's so good to be in person so that we can engage in dialogue, not only with our colleagues, but also with this most esteemed court. Because we are New Mexico. And we can't be New Mexico if we ignore the governing documents that everyone in this room is charged to follow, including but not limited to the governor. So the question that begs to be asked, Your Honor, aside from, again, all the comments made by counsel, is where does the state constitution come in? And I would suggest to you that that, too, has to be considered by this court. Well, for the purposes of this TRO, I'm not sure that the state constitution provision would be something that I will hang my hat on. And I'm sure the court won't do that. But I am also confident, as an officer of the court, that the court must also look at other points of guidance to assist it in determining whether this is a broad overreach. And we would all concede a couple of things. That would be for the ultimate merits of this case, I think. That is correct, Your Honor. For now, let's stick to, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I think the important part here is to look at the request for the TRO, whether under the cases cited and the legal authority cited by the parties here, the plaintiffs are entitled to a TRO. And that's what I'm looking at with regard to the factors that are aligned. And precisely, and I won't be redundant because we've said it, every one of us has said the same thing. McDonald clearly indicates that we have a right to bear arms. But when you get to Bruin, it does say that we have a right to bear arms publicly for self-defense. And Mr. Fort is asking this court to allow him to bear arms for the purposes of self-defense. And I will rest along with all the other comments of my colleagues and ask you to incorporate their arguments with ours as well, because I believe we are all asking the court for the same redress. I'll yield to questions, Your Honor. 
Thank you, Mr. Argon. I think I got I have all the the answers that I need at the at this time. I, I may come back to the plaintiffs after I've heard from. We'll, the we'll go to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's hear from uh, the defense. From the defendant. Good afternoon, Your Honor. May it please the court. You may proceed. Um, First, I'll note that uh, Mr. Adagon, to our distinguished legislators that are here, I believe he called you extinct. I think he meant to say distinguished, but I believe that you exist and that you're here. So don't worry, everybody. We know you're around. Um, one of the preliminary things I want to discuss, Judge, is that uh, the defendants actually haven't been served with some of these cases. So I'm, I'm a little bit just sort of going on instinct about what the general issues are. I know we were served with the... Uh, maybe the Forte case and the, the Blase or the Blas case yesterday. I think the the Donk case was faxed to the Attorney General's office, but it wasn't served on our office. I think I read one in the newspaper, but I don't know which one it is. It's, if it even is one of these ones. So to the extent that there are you know issues other than essentially this Second Amendment um, Bruin scenario. Um, if somebody would alert me to that so we can talk about that, I think we can do that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, as you know, with the TRO, uh, the court could have issued this ex parte, but I wanted to, given the, the sort of the significance of this issue, I wanted to make sure that um, the governor had a chance to respond at least before I considered the TRO, and that's why I, I'm glad that you're here today. Sure. Um, but I agree that you have not, and I, I fully understand that you haven't had the uh, ability to review some of the briefs that have been filed probably fully, uh, but I anticipate you will uh, at some point later uh, in this litigation. The only issue we, we're here for now is whether or not the plaintiffs, to determine whether or not the plaintiffs have met their burden of showing that under the, the factors for a TRO, whether or not those have been met. Um, I think, you know, to be honest with you, I think you have a, kind of a hard, a hard road here uh, to get up, uh, especially given given the Supreme Court's holding in Bruin and McDonald and, and Heller. So tell me, with regard to the substantial likelihood of success on the merits, and tell me how I should be looking at that and what's, what's your position on that. Sure. I think that um, Bruin actually raises more questions than answers. Um, and, and to remember and to recall here that Bruin is a licensing case um, that's a little different than what we're talking about here. I, I was struck by something that Mr. Aragon just said about um, no law when he was reading from the state constitution. Uh, and I want to point out to the court that this is not a law. This is a temporary uh, enforcement of the public health code to protect public safety. But I'll, I'll get to that a little more in a second. I think everybody in this room agrees that gun violence in Albuquerque is a problem. I think probably most people agree that gun violence everywhere in the state and the country is a problem. Um, my colleagues to my left believe that the answer is more guns on the street and not less. My colleagues to my left argued, I think, a pretty bright line, and, and Your Honor noticed it, which is that lawful hand or lawful firearms owners do not commit crimes. I wish that were true. But I don't think it is. I wish when our police officers walked down the street 
They could see people wearing a shirt that said good guy and somebody with a shirt that said bad guy. But that doesn't exist. And so what we have instead are people out in public with weapons and no way to discern who the good guy is or who the bad guy is or who the good guy is right now that might be a bad guy in 20 minutes. And so with that, the nexus between this public health emergency and the ban, the temporary pause on uh, what, what difference does that make, uh, whether it's a temporary pause or something that's more permanent? Sure, I mean, as far, and I, as, far as the constitutional analysis goes, what difference would it make? Well, I think what's interesting about that is that that's another reason why I actually think more briefing is just needed without a TRO. I think more briefing is needed on that because when we talk about no law shall do X, Y, and Z, this is not a law doing X, Y, and Z. What this is, again, is a, is a specific use of the public health code. Um, again, just for a cooling down, just for a pause. Well, um, you say that more briefing might be necessary. It, wouldn't it make sense? I think the whole purpose of a temporary restraining order is to hold everything as a status quo until we can determine that issue. So today, if I was to issue the TRO, for instance, assuming that I'm going to find the factors fit into the TRO here, um, we're basically just pausing it for the next up to 14 days, I believe, um, until we can have a fuller hearing. You can respond more fully. We can have more briefing, and then we can ultimately determine the issue, either at the preliminary injunction stage or possibly at trial, or together if we decide to do that. Um, but why wouldn't we want to hold on to the status quo right now, which is people, law-abiding citizens in the state of New Mexico have a right to bear arms until we decide this issue? Sure. The status quo right now also is that people are being murdered in this city almost every single day, and that gunshots are a multiple time daily occurrence for the residents of the city. People are being shot, people are being murdered, and people are living in fear. Well, and that's true, and I, I don't, I don't uh, dispute that. I don't think anyone here disputes that. But wasn't that sort of the same argument in Bruin, saying New York City, we have a congested city, we have a city that has a, has a rampant with crime, uh, we need to be able to expand this sensitive place definition throughout the city. It seems like, it seems to me like when I read Bruin, it sounds a lot like New York City, at least, or the officials there were concerned and had the same concerns that the governor has here, legitimate concerns, but the way that they addressed it, the Supreme Court flatly and, and quite frankly, pretty blatantly said was unconstitutional. Well, I think that, that, that that's true, but I, but I put a little pin in that. Um, and one thing that I would note is, uh, you know, again, the, the notion of, of sensitive places but that's actually that's, it's an analog to what's going on here. But it's but it's not on all fours. But in New York post Bruin, their sensitive places include uh, government buildings, including courthouses. Judges like to make sure that they're protected, right? Um, places of worship, healthcare facilities, libraries, playgrounds, public parks, zoos. Um, Educational institutions, summer camps, developmental disability treatment locations, domestic violence shelters, mass transit, places with liquor licenses, performing arts venues, amusement parks, museums, racetracks. Um, that's the post-Bruin law in New York. And now I looked because I actually was wondering very strongly whether that law was enjoined. And I, I did not see that it was. I, 
anybody is feel free is free to correct me if I'm wrong about that. But to, but as far as I know, that's that's the status, and including Times Square. Well, yes, and that might be the case, but that's not what the governor's order attempts to do here. She doesn't go through and say, uh, you know, here are the sensitive places, and we're not we're restricting it to you know, no gun carrying on churches or amusement parks or or what have you. She has it's a blanket. Uh, prohibition against carrying firearms in sort of undefined counties. So, or county singular, yes. Or county singular, but, but I mean, I'm not sure, and I, I, I know that I read Mr. Lowry's argument on the vagueness. I tend to agree. It's kind of hard to determine, and I know the governor stated it publicly that it was Bernalillo County, I believe, and, and Albuquerque would be the areas. Um, but how was, we'll get to that later, I suppose. But anyway, that's different from what happened in Bruin. It is, this is a much, and I think that's the problem, is there's a much broader prohibition against all carrying of, of firearms within, within uh, this county. Sure, but I also think that Bruin, um, the, the historical analog component of Bruin, and, and we can debate whether or not Justice Thomas picked and chose what history he chose to rely on for that, but the I, I can't debate that. <laughs> I mean, I, that, that's the thing is I, I can't sit here and disagree with what Clarence Thomas said because, right. because I'm a district court judge. He's a member of the Supreme Court. We follow his precedent. Sure. Uh, of course. Of course. Um, but the notion that this uh, 1861 or, or 1791 or 1864, um, that that is the stopping point, the anchor stops there, I think is part of the flaw of Bruin, which I think that the Supreme Court of the United States is going to clarify. I think they're going to need to. I think it's very significant for this court's analysis that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the Rahimi matter in November. That case is about um, whether somebody with a domestic violence restraining order, I believe a civil one, um, can be, uh, can have his right to um, carry a firearm removed. And the reason why that's significant is because the Supreme Court is going to have to, at a certain point, um, and I think that they agree with that, which is why they've granted cert to Rahimi, I think that the Supreme Court is going to have to decide what about circumstances that don't have a historical analog. Um, I don't like saying it, but I think it's true that, you know, in 1791, there was no such thing as domestic violence because nobody thought it was bad, right? It was just what you did. You beat your wife. So there is no analog to, you know, 300 years ago where for something that didn't exist. And I think that right now we are in a very similar moment, that we are looking at something that did not exist. Um, and and I, don't think that the, I don't think that the law in New York, um, in, the, in, in Bruin, um, I don't think it had historical, you know, data in its in the in the uh, legislative record or anything else. But what we do have here what is it that doesn't exist in this case. Well, what, we, what do you mean by that? Sure. What we have here that doesn't that did yeah. not exist previously, right, is a commingling of two very very serious in and of their uh, in, and of, in and of themselves two very serious issues. Drugs, drugs and guns. And you know, uh, I'm sure it's in the PHO, and it would, the governor also issued an executive order declaring drugs 
an emergency. I think the confluence of that is extremely important. And this isn't 1791. We don't have muskets, right? We don't use leeches anymore. Um, what we have here is a confluence of emergencies. And what we have here is a very temporary cooling off period where the Department of Public Safety can go pick up people on warrants, where the Department of Health can do additional studies uh, from all of the hospitals about data, about gunshot victims, and put together a robust report so people can see where the problems are and, and help address them. Um, I think that those are very important goals. And I would also say that the Department of Health's authority to do this goes back at least 100 years as far as I can find. Um, you know, we can't go back to 1791 and what did New Mexico do because we didn't have New Mexico in 1791, but what we can say is that the Public Health Department, and I know we were talking about that earlier, um, but is that the Public Health Department has to control and abate sources of mortality and other conditions of public health. And that's what they're trying to do. But the question is, though, can they do it at the expense of the constitutional right, like the Second Amendment? Well, sure. But in this case, no one is saying you can't buy a gun, and no one is saying you can't get a concealed carry permit. No one is saying you can't carry that gun somewhere else. I thought, I thought that's exactly what it does say, is you can't carry the gun. Outside of Bernalillo is what I'm saying. Oh. You, you can carry your gun over there. What if you live in Bernalillo? What if, what if for those residents and law-abiding citizens who live in Bernalillo and don't go anywhere else, they're restricted from carrying guns just altogether, whether concealed or otherwise, whether they have a permit or otherwise? They're not, I mean, they're not restricted from carrying guns altogether. They can have them in their car with a lock device, and they can go to their local shooting range. They can go to, to competitions with it. There, there are things they can do, but, it, but I, I'm not... I'm not saying I don't understand your point, because I do. Um, you know, what you're talking about is the carrying of weapons for self-defense. Right. And, and I get it. But again, what I would say is the status quo is more guns, not less. Right? That's the argument that I keep hearing from the folks on my left. More guns, not less. And at this point... And, and I have to say, I don't hear that from them. Sure. What I hear from them is... They just want the right to carry their, their guns. They don't want necessarily more guns on the street. They just want the right to carry the guns. Where are you getting this idea that they want more guns? What they're saying is more people on the streets with guns is safer than, than less people on the streets with guns. Okay. So, okay. So, so, again, what I would say is, once again, this sort of paradoxical notion that people will break the law, so it means we shouldn't even try. It means we can't even try under, under Bruin, according to that analysis. We cannot even try. And the governor rejects that notion. She rejects the notion that we, that we can't try. And she rejects the notion that this is not an absolute emergency, where kids are being shot and killed in their beds, when they're leaving baseball games, every day. She rejects the notion that Bruin says she can't do anything about that. And honestly, Your Honor, as I said, I think that Bruin raises a lot more questions than answers. The governor rejects the notion that she can't even try to keep the streets safe. 
And then she rejects the notion that other people in this city have lesser rights than other people. Right? She rejects the notion that the right to walk down the street is somehow trumped by the Second Amendment. She rejects that notion. Every citizen has a right to be safe. And while some citizens absolutely do carry their guns for self-defense, there is no way to distinguish, again, like I said, there's no good guy shirt and bad guy shirt. So we have to do something. And this is the something that we're trying to do. Let's see what happens. Let's give it the 30 days and let's see what happens. The out-of-state organizations are ignoring the emergency of what happens here every day, even though I agree with most of the attorneys that this is a big problem. They agree that it is too. I will note that Mayor Keller sent a letter to the governor yesterday with Chief Medina saying this is an emergency. He agrees this is an emergency. And the result is that too many people, too many people, too many politicians, people who are looking to be reelected, who are afraid of the NRA, too many politicians have thrown up their hands and said, this is too hard. We're not going to do anything about it. And the governor rejects that notion. She also swore an oath to uphold the safety of everybody in New Mexico. She rejects that notion. She refuses to accept it. And I think that this court should, too. Thank you. Thank you. It's going to take about a five-minute or ten-minute recess um, to look over some materials and determine if I have any further questions for the parties. Let's return here at about 20 till, um, and then I'll, I'll make a, a decision on the TRO. Court will be recess. Thank you all for the arguments today and for the, for the thorough briefing on the issue uh, before the court. The court agrees with all the parties here today that gun violence is a significant problem in the state of New Mexico and in particularly in Albuquerque in the city of Bernalillo, or the county of Bernalillo. Um, in particular, the court is, uh, as many people are, have been uh, extremely affected by the deaths of children to gun violence in this state. But today the court is faced with a much more sort of narrow issue and question, and that is whether under the express terms of the public health order issued by the governor and, um, and the Supreme Court precedent that I have to deal with today uh, and have to follow, whether the plaintiffs have shown uh, that the four factors for establishing a TRO have been met in this case. And after reviewing the motions before the court, the arguments made by the parties at this hearing the public health order signed by the Secretary of New Mexico Department of Health, the Executive Order 2023-130, and the applicable law regarding restrictions on the public carrying of firearms, the court will grant the plaintiff's motion for a temporary restraining order. 
and will temporarily enjoin the defendants from applying and enforcing Section 1 of the New Mexico Department of Health's Public Health Emergency Order, issued on September 8, 2023, and Section 4 of the New Mexico Department of Health's Public Health Emergency Order, issued on September 8, 2023, to the extent that Section 4 imposes additional restrictions on the carrying of firearms that were not already in place prior to the issuance of the public health order. The court finds the plaintiffs have met their burden of showing a substantial likelihood of success on the merits given the Supreme Court's holdings in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, District of Columbia versus Heller, and McDonald versus Chicago. In particular, the court finds that Bruin's holding confirming that individuals have a right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home supports the contention that plaintiffs have met this factor for justifying a temporary restraining order at this stage of the litigation. The court further finds that if an injunction is not issued, plaintiffs have shown they will suffer irreparable harm. Again, the Supreme Court in cases like New York Times Company versus the United States and Elrod versus Burns has made clear that the violation of a constitutional right, even for minimal periods of time, unquestionably constitutes irreparable injury. As to the balances of harms and whether an injunction would be adverse to the public interest, the court finds these factors also favor the issuance of a temporary restraining order, as courts have similarly found that it is always in the public interest to prevent the violation of a party's constitutional rights, and the balance of equities favors those whose constitutional rights are threatened. The court will issue a written order on the TRO, probably this afternoon or tomorrow, but it is effective as of 2.55 p.m. on September 13, 2023, today's date, and will be in effect for the next 14 days. The court's decision today is not a final adjudication on the merits of the litigation. The court will hold a hearing on the plaintiff's motions for preliminary injunction on September 27, 2023, at 10 a.m. in this courtroom. The plaintiffs will not be required to provide security or a bond. That will be the court's order on that. Any questions? Currently, Your Honor, I am actually scheduled to be in trial in the congressional redistricting case on the 27th, 28th, and 29th of September. So I'm wondering if there's a way to maybe push this to the following week. Well, the only problem with that is this TRO can only be in effect for 14 days, so I'm going to have to hear the issue. Would you be available on the 25th? I'll be available. I'll make it available, yeah. Hold on one second. Let me see. I'm getting a thumbs up from the courtroom deputy. Let me see from the other counsel if they'll be available on September 25th. Your Honor, I will not be available. The 25th is Yom Kippur. All right. Would the governor's counsel be willing to stipulate to extending the moratorium on enforcing the order until the governor's counsel can meet the following week? Yes, I'll stipulate, yeah. The government or the governor will be in accordance with the defendants. I assume that you're representing all the defendants. That's correct, Your Honor. They will be all right with extending. I can't extend it for good cause beyond the 14 days. You'll be okay with me extending the temporary restraining order beyond the 14 days so we can find a date? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Let's see if we can't set a date here. 
now. You said you're going to be at, in the registering trials from the 27th to the 28th? 27th to the 29th, I believe. It's a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Represent to the court that in the past few days I received an email from the Albuquerque uh, City Attorney, Attorney Lauren Keefe, representing to me that Mr. Medina has no intention of enforcing the governor's order, but uh, I don't know how that would impact the 14 days because uh, Mr. Medina is a defendant in our action. I'm not sure how, what you mean, how would it affect it? The, the TR will be in place for 14 days. We are, we're agreeing on a schedule. I, uh, our colleague has stipulated on behalf of the state defendants to go beyond the uh, 14 days. Um, as to Mr. Medina, obviously I need to discuss with Attorney Keith how to proceed with him, but I want to bring to the court's attention that our colleague may not necessarily be stipulating for all of the defendants in the We the Patriots USA case. Uh, and again, I think for, for good cause, the court can extend the 14 days. We would ask you to do so. And I will do so. Thank you, So let's set October 3rd, 10 o'clock a.m. in this courtroom for the uh, motion on preliminary injunction. Again, the governors and the, def the individual defendants are, um, well not individual defendants, but the defendants in their official capacity um, may provide a response to the motions for preliminary injunction that have been filed. Hopefully I can get those uh, ahead of the hearing so we can uh, consider them. Uh, any other questions from the parties regarding the temporary restraining order? No? All right, court will be in recess, thank you.